1: This is a CBC Podcast. I'm running ahead of Bill. A storm petrol just went into the wall and I'm running to try to protect it first from the gulls that now are coming by.
0: Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed, And that person running is Ideas producer Mary Link up a huge wharf next to a raging Atlantic Ocean in southeast Newfoundland, trying to rescue small seabirds crashing into the brightly lit wall of a massive fish plant. A race between her and the large seagulls swooping down for the kill. Go away, go, go away. It's just after midnight. Windy, stormy, and cold, but also wild, beautiful, and intense. A constant hovering between life and death Day two of her time with seabird scientist Bill Montevecchi. This
2: guy seems fine. He hit the wall pretty hard. Now we'll bring him back. We're going to weigh him, measure him, age him, and then we're going to let him go. So that's great. We well, got one anyway. Oh, I'm so happy
0: this one's alive.
1: I feel much better after the last one.
0: In 2020, Stanford University ranked Bill Montevecchi in the top 2% of the world scientists. Fifty years before that, as a young PhD grad in animal behavior from Rutgers University, he was drawn to Newfoundland and its extraordinary seabird colonies, leaving behind his Massachusetts home and never looking back. Or, as Bill likes to say, keep looking up. And that's his approach to his work in Newfoundland, despite the devastating effect of climate change and pollution on seabirds and the arrival in June 2022 of the avian flu. We're calling this program The Birdman Adventures with Bill Montevecchi. Here's Mary. Hi.
2: Hi, Mary. How are you? (laughs) First
0: day, a road trip in thick fog and post-hurricane winds, from Saint John's to the dramatic cliffs of Cape Saint Mary's,
2: we're on the highway now, and we're heading to Cape Saint Mary's. It's it's the southwestern tip of the Avalon Peninsula in eastern Newfoundland, and it, it's an absolutely spectacular bird colony. It has tens of thousands of kittiwakes and murres, and one of the most beautiful. In significant gannet colonies in, in the world. What's a gannet? A gannet is the largest seabird that breeds in the North Atlantic. It's a magnificent animal. They breed in Scotland, in Europe, Germany, Ireland, Iceland, Newfoundland, and Quebec. There's some in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. So the biggest A really beautiful white bird with a two meter wingspan a golden head and a beak like a dagger you know like a six inch beak that when we handle them we have to be so careful you know to not take a peck or a bite it's a big strong bird how much does it weigh about seven pounds hey this is the other thing about cape st mary's though that's really significant so a major part of our research, a major part of everybody's research these days is obviously climate change. Well, Cape St. Mary's happens to be the southernmost colony. I think I'll just stay in this lane. Cape St. Mary's is the southernmost colony of northern gannets in the world. Uh, They only breed in the Atlantic. So if you are interested in climate change and and you want to ask questions about climate change effects it seems like particularly if we're talking about a warming ocean well then to focus on the southern range limit of a species and you know this particular species in the ocean again it where it breeds this is where we would expect to see change you know this might be the first place when Hot water, warm water actually affects what these animals do.
1: And St. Mary's is an ecological reserve.
2: Yes, that's correct. Three um, hour
1: drive from St. Yep, Mary's. Three hour Saint drive
2: John. and you'll be at the Cape. In complete fog. <laughs> and, oh, well, no, but listen, no, the good news is we have northerly winds. It's totally foggy here. Unless those winds shift, northerly wind is the best one to, oh, uh, to have a clear day. Oh, good. Um, so we might be able I, to. See. I don't know. That's the prediction, though
1: come back to our trip to Cape St. Mary's in a bit. I also sat down with Bill at a friend's kitchen table in St. John's. Here's part of that conversation. Bill, I know there's many different types of seabirds, obviously, but give me the pitch in terms
2: of their importance. Yeah, well, uh, okay. When I look at seabirds, you know, what I see is I see these magnificent... You know, I, I, it, for me, it's a window on the ocean. I mean, that's why I study seabirds. I mean, I love the animals. I, their behavior is intriguing. The animals are stunningly beautiful. But I, it's their lifestyle that really attracts me and how they make their living and how how they can live in an environment that's really just you know, quasi-predictable, and on a daily basis have to know where they can find food. They have to figure it out, and it's constantly changing. And in those circumstances, you have to live in the absolute presence, and you either get it right or you suffer. And if you don't, if you don't get it right within four or five days, you die. Under those circumstances, you're truly Olympian in terms of your abilities, cognitive, physical, because you have to be. And, and it's in ways that we don't understand or can't understand but could tap into by watching their behavior and figuring out, well, what do they do? How do they know that? How do they stay alive? I think they're incredible. I mean, every time I handle one, yes, uh, it's, it's really special, and I really value that, and I want to do that. But I'm studying them to learn the bigger questions about the ocean and life in the ocean. And the other thing about seabirds, there's so many of us, there's so many marine biologists in the world, in Canada, in Newfoundland, highly competent people that study fish and plankton and whales, and all of these, and, and just physical processes of chemical oceanography, currents, et cetera, et cetera, you know, lots of physics. But... In the ocean, you know, when you look out over the ocean, you don't see the fish. You might see a whale periodically when it comes to shore to feed. Uh, you see seals sometimes. But the birds, the birds are the evident You know, they're the most tractable of marine animals to study. When there's an oil spill, we used to get, uh, you don't refer to them as spills. They were illegal discharges of oil off the south coast of Newfoundland. So ships, tankers, freighters, whatever, they would, you know, coming from Europe, going into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, going into New York. Once they passed Cape Race on the southeast tip of Newfoundland, you know, they're out of the, the north easterly gales of the North Atlantic. And so they're getting in mellower water. And these, these boats carry a lot of ballast, a lot of water, you know, in their bilges to stabilize the boat. So it's like weight. In the past, people used to put boulders in and, and the wooden boats. But once they get past Cape Race on the south coast of Newfoundland, they were often chucked the bilge water because they didn't need the stability and they could go faster. And when that happened, that water was really oily. So that wasn't a spill, that was a discharge, it was illegal. Many boats were doing it, but how we found out is because people found oiled seabirds on the south coast of Newfoundland and they knew well they're coming from somewhere and you know it it took decades for people to figure it out properly and it took decades to regulate it. But essentially, it's been stopped. You know, it's been stopped through the efforts of Canadian Coast Guard. Um, bill well, well, no, you know, I mean, it, it, Canadian Wildlife Service. Yeah, I spent a lot of time on beaches and a lot of people, a lot of people. You know, just, it was compassion. Um, that, so with the oil
1: spills, Bill, when you came here 50 years ago, you came here at 26 and now you're 77. When you came here 50 years ago, that was a big concern, oil spills, right? Oh, huge. But... Did you, and thankfully, you and many others have fought against it and, and ended that practice, but did you, could you have predicted 50 years ago, did you have a sense where we were heading in terms of climate change and what the impact was going to be on birds, because, on the seabirds, because that's the big thing now. What you were fighting back then was sort of almost easy to fix because it was a simple solution once you get the, the shipping people online and, and make them do that, but you can't force Mother Nature to do anything, uh, in terms of how it responds to mankind, uh, climate change. So when did you first start seeing the impact of climate change and how much has that changed your research and your science?
2: Yeah, well, one thing that so we're in, you know, the concern now is hot ocean, you know, that's our basic concern and this whole study of what's called heat waves and and they're just getting to be more and more common. This is the most compelling part in the ocean, it seems for climate change, these heat waves. And, John Pyatt, he did his PhD at Memorial. He he worked with me when he was here and and once he finished, a brilliant brilliant student, a brilliant scientist now. He went on to Alaska and he's been working in Alaska for about 30 years. And when the Exxon Valdez just uh, you know ran aground in Prince William Sound and killed tens of thousands of seabirds in one go, John was there. He was he was the guy that you know, collected the bodies and did the counts and and showed, like, this is a catastrophe of major proportions. That was then. So to answer your question, just following John Pyatt's lead, so in 2016, John Pyatt published a paper on a heat wave in Alaska, and the mortality estimates, just for MERS, I think, were... 60,000 MERS dead, and there were lots of other birds dead. And I remember, you know, having some discussion with John, and he said, This far outweighs any of the oil spills that we've ever dealt with. And it, it was like, You just have to pay attention to this because this is this can change everything. You know, it, it's a major concern, and so we're following it. And uh, you know we don't you know it's I, I the best way I can describe it is it's like a it's like a mystery and it's ongoing you know we have the avian influenza that just came in and killed tens of thousands of birds so here.
1: tell us about that the avian so you've got the, the the waters now off Newfoundland are like you were saying 16 degrees which is hotter yeah which is really hot for Newfoundland I mean people don't swim in the ocean very much in Newfoundland because it's so cold but 16 is a pretty pretty and 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 that has huge impact and we can talk about about it more and will be as we go to Cape Saint Mary's and various things, but in terms of the avian flu, this is new. This is we're talking in uh, the beginning of fall here, but it was only last June, June of 2022, that you first found out about this.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We're in real time investigation. You know, this is real time, and. You know, when we go to the northeast coast, you know, we're still getting dead birds. They're coming in. And that's what we're trying to document. You know, how many birds died? Where did they die? When did they die? And at the very least, we'll be able to show the radiation of that disease as it spread in Newfoundland. So, but take me back. So where
1: did it start and how has it spread so quickly? And, and now has come to,
2: to well, to Cape St. Mary's just this June it's industrial food production right they trace it to large chicken production facilities bird you know bird facilities in china and then through Asia into Russia, then into Western Europe, and then into you know eventually to the coast so of. So when Europe.
1: did it start? When did it start? When did they first detect it in China? Yeah, and then? that
2: was a while ago. I mean, I think it's been percolating around there for a few years. It might have even been two fifteen when there was the first detection.
1: What does avian flu do?
2: Well, the descriptions, you know, I, the seabirds, I've picked up and tested so many dead seabirds this year. I I don't see any when I look at those dead birds they look perfectly healthy to me. They look robust. They they're not they don't have any injury. Um, so it's sort of like a quick virus. Well, I I'm, I'm sure or no, I think it's a slow death. And I think it's a, a slow Perhaps suffering death because we'll see birds on the beach and, you know, it might be a day, it might be two days and they're just lethargic. Lots of reports of birds at sea just swimming around in circles. So it's got to be neurological. Gannets that I look at, they have this, you know, absolutely steely gray eye that looks right through you and when I've seen some of these sick birds, that, that's that gone. You don't see that in their eye. And you see some dark spots in their irises. And so there's, there's just crazy things going on. So what totally intrigued me this summer about what happened is the first instance of this flu. It, it was with a massive gannet colony in the Magdalene Islands. And there were dead birds, birds started dying, and and those dead birds started showing up on the coast of Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, Western Newfoundland, and so that was curious. And okay, that that sort of happened. But then that would have been in May, early June, and then as June progressed, fishermen from the Buren Peninsula, this would be on the south coast of Newfoundland, now moving from the west coast. Fishermen on on the Buren Peninsula said that well, there's dead mers everywhere. So then that virus started to spread across the south coast of Newfoundland. And fishermen, you know, about midway across the the south coast of Newfoundland, fishermen started reporting, uh, and they were concerned. There's there's dead mers everywhere on the water. There's dead mers on the beaches. There's dead gannets, uh, and they were also getting some dead puffins and. You know, a number of... Other, but, it was, you know, hundreds of birds. And
1: what did you think when you first heard that?
2: Well, I thought, oh, here it comes, you know. and Because this is what we've documented. We we have to put this together. But what we've documented is this west to east progression. And right now that's ongoing. You know, it's, it's probably heading up to Labrador right now. And so that was in the middle of the south coast of Newfoundland. But then in early June, it was, you know, 80... Um,
1: Bill's talking about Eddie White. Months before, in June 2022, Eddie was out fishing off Cape St. Mary's.
2: A fisherman, and, and a couple of other fishermen, they were just out fishing, and they said they found four dead gannets on the water. And, you know, once in a while you might find a dead gannet gets stuck in a herring net and it dies or drowns. But they said, this is really unusual. We, we see four dead gannets. So Eddie collected two of them, and then I, I got one, I, I think I got the immature bird there was an immature bird anyway I got that immature gannet from Eddie and then I turned it over to Canadian Wildlife Service and and they tested it and it it tested positive for the influenza so that was frightening because that that was the fuse for Cape St Mary's which is a massive gannet colony in the world as a matter of fact everybody was in anticipation I just hope it doesn't get here Because we knew that in in Europe, the largest Gannet colony in the world on Bass Rocks was decimated. You know, I mean, maybe half of the birds died. And we're talking tens of thousands of birds. And so we were just hoping, oh, let's just hope and pray it doesn't get to Cape St. Mary's. And... That was the first indication. Eddie picked up those birds. I said, we don't like seeing these dead birds. So it wasn't like we weren't waiting for it. It wasn't like we didn't know it might be coming, but we were just hoping it wouldn't. And just like COVID, I think most people's expectation is this isn't going to go away. We don't know what's going to happen next summer. Could they be decimated? Could could, could avian flu kill
1: species? how has this been for you as a scientist for 50 years studying seabirds and the impact to see a greater devastation to birds than oil? What's, what, what's been going through your mind, even philosophically, I guess, about what you're seeing happening?
2: <clears throat> you know, I mean, the most unusual thing is, I mean, I've seen so I've gotten immune to it, to tell you the honest truth. You know, in the past, we always got immune to the oiled birds because you kind of had to shut it down and just deal with it. The hard ones are the individuals, you know, it's like the one bird on the beach that's just suffering and you interact with it and you, and those are tough, but dealing with the dead ones, you know, I mean, I I think I've, you know, I think I really have an immunity to it. I, I just can't be, you know, whining and pining over all these, you know, I mean, I'm really concerned about it, but in in the process of just really trying to understand it and document it um i'm really immune to the to the death and not to the devastation but but to the death the devastation will be the big question you know and and but the emotional impacts it's with you know and and i've handled a few and and they haven't all been bad to tell you the truth we the i can i think it might have been the last bird i captured it was in a Forest, and we got a great catch on it, you know, I just wa- you know it just walked into a net for me, and I picked it up and and it was so weak and and what I told you it it's eye wasn't penetrating, and it was so weak, I had a bit of you know life, but you know, I just knew it was a sick bird. I tested it, so i i don't have the result of that yet, but I can't imagine it wasn't sick, but anyway, we caught it in a net. And um, we just brought it over to the cliff. And, and the options were well, you know, maybe this bird is just going to plummet right down and die on the rocks and just smash because this bird wasn't strong. And so that was a real option. We only have one option this bird's going to die, and we can give it a second chance to get out in the ocean, and maybe some miracle would happen. And and to do that, we have to take the risk that maybe it's just going to fall down and smash its head on the rocks. But you know, but the decision is like let's let's just give the bird the option, you know. So we put it on the edge of the cliff, and you know, I just gave it a little bit of a nudge. And the most amazing thing was, it just opened its wings, and it it must have flown for a half a kilometer. It didn't crash on the rocks, and end up in the middle of the bay. And we could see it, and it's probably going to die, but, you know, it it didn't die in the woods, right? So, but um,
1: it died in the water. What well, died
2: in? Yeah, that's right. It died in the ocean, you know. And it doesn't. That's a good you. place to die. Yeah, right. I mean, why die in the woods when you shouldn't be there? So, to me, um, that was a resolution. We resolved its death, you know. And good, get out there, die, and and die where you should die, you know. So, and and you know, and, so that was great. Emotion, I mean, that was great. So, is the emotion I
1: mean, bill in part that you're feeling right now and there's tears in your eyes and I'm sort of, I feel that impact and I can see the birds cause they're magnificent. Is the emotion in part because this bird is so innocent, this bird had nothing to do with its death except for man's greed perhaps and selfishness. I mean, what, where is the emotion from?
2: <clears throat> well, I, I actually think, yeah, I mean, we go there all the time and we, we have to, but you know, to me, this was a more basic question this was a question about life and death. And it didn't matter who was responsible, it didn't matter what was responsible. We, we we were just on the we were on the cusp of life and death. You know, and sometimes in your own life you will sooner or later if you haven't experienced that. And and when I couldn't that- help
1: thinking when Bill was talking about that dying gannet and giving it one last flight of Bill's heart attack a few years back, and that he too is experiencing the wonder of a second chance.
2: This bird's dying. Let's have some dignity about this whole thing. You know, and, and so to give the bird the option, that's, you know, that's really all we did. And that's what, I, you know, that's kind of what I always want to do. You know, that's probably what you want for yourself. You just want an option. If it crashes on the rock and smashes its head, it's dead. It was probably going to die anyway, so let's not be romantic about it. It died. It smashed its head and we helped it do that. But maybe, maybe it's just a second chance. And it's a chance. So it's a 50-50. So you're talking about emotion. And, I'm, you know, I'm acting emotionally. It was elating. You know, it was like everybody probably just screamed with joy when that bird spread its wings and just took off, right? And so good for you. And, you know, go out there and die a good death. You didn't die in the woods where you didn't really want to be, you know, so.
1: You had a last flight because they're they're so spectacular. Again, it's they have such a. They're these, you know, white birds with a yellow head, and they have it. The wingtips are black, and they just, when they expand those wings, two meters. Two meters. They're just glorious to watch. Mm, Absolutely.
0: You're listening to The Birdman, Adventures with Bill Montevecchi on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. On day one of their adventures, after a three-hour drive in thick fog and mist, Bill Montevecchi and ideas producer Mary Lenk turn onto the road to Cape St. Mary's world-famous seabird colonies.
2: Just starting the 13 kilometer drive on the road to Cape St. Mary's Ecological Reserve. We have a northerly wind, which at Cape St. Mary's is a good wind because it blows the fog and the mist away from the coast. So we should today get a really good look at the gannets and we'll also be able to see birds that died from the avian influenza. And, um, you know, that'll be another sighting, a depressing one, but. One that we're trying to keep track of.
1: Do you remember the first time you saw Cape St. Mary's?
2: I probably do. I'd have to think back. I know my first impression was I looked over at the stack, and it was just all white. This would have been in the summer in June or July. And when
1: you say stack, what do you mean by yeah, that? Yeah, I
2: looked over at the Gannett Colony on Bird Rock. This it's a It's a huge cliff that sticks out from the coast and it's just covered with gannets and when i first saw that i just thought oh that looks like snow i I just couldn't believe it was just birds covering this massive rock that's about 300 meters high and just pure white and and i knew it wasn't snow but it was just hard to um fathom I'd never seen anything like it, I'd been in other bird colonies before, and, you know, it's been that way ever since, actually, every time. It is one of the most beautiful colonies.
1: Bill and I arrive at Cape St. Mary's, and it is magnificent. The fog is indeed lifted, and the sky is a glorious blue. There's an unusually warm post-hurricane wind,
2: albeit it's wild. The wind, man. I think it's probably about 60 kilometers an hour in that ballpark, northwesterly, so blowing the junky fog and stuff away from the coast, and it's nice and clear. Good day for the birds, for sure. They like wind. They like wind? They like wind. Of course. Yes, well, easier to fly. Yeah, exactly.
1: We walk over to the interpretation center.
2: How come it says closed? This is closed. Oh, yeah. We're going to have to get permission to go out. Because of the high winds today, uh, wow. the building
1: and the long, winding trails down to the edge of the cliffs have been closed to the public. We meet two local residents who work there as
2: guides. So, this is Mary Link. Uh, she Hi. works for CBC. This is Edna White. Hi. Hi, Edna. And Loretta. She's all the other interpreter here. Hi, Loretta. And what do you think about Bill?
1: Oh, he's fantastic. <laughs>
2: And we're going to walk over. The trail's actually closed, but we're going to, We'll be very cautious and I'll walk over and stay away from the cliff, so you don't blow over. No, it's good. It's good. And we know the fun, I'm, I'm trying to. I'm kind of being facetious, but you know, I would never with students or myself. We wouldn't do anything. How
1: okay. much insurance do
2: you have? No. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. I should maybe give my husband a call and tell him about my insurance.
1: No, no. Let's let's go. Alright, okay, okay. we
2: can your... pop out that way yeah, We'll be no careful Okay, you thank you,
1: take care <laughs> Where's the first aid kit?
2: <laughs> it's way down It's way down there
1: Wow Coming across The bird calling now, just walking up to it Quite spectacular. Oh my, God. oh my goodness, it's beautiful. Just walking up now into the colony, right on the cliff, and these really quite elegant birds flying all over the place, and the others
2: sitting. Uh, you can see some carcasses out there, uh, kind of mottled and trampled on. Uh, The dark brown birds are the young of the year and uh, they're they're really obvious, they're quite different from the white mature parents that are out there. In fact, what happens are those little brown, well they're not little, they're as big as the adults, those brown birds are moving around because they're objective, they're getting ready to leave, but for them to leave, they can't leave those birds in the middle of the plateau there cannot actually leave from there. They have to get to a cliff edge where they can get an updraft and realize they've never flown in their lives. So at some point they just make a decision to go. They're just getting anxious and itchy and you know there's something telling them, you know, it's it's time to go. And actually the other interesting thing you can see there there's a lot of pairs of adults with no young which means probably their young have already left and when that happens you'll see a couple of pairs there what happens is after the young leave the parents start you know they actually start corning again and they start preening again it's like junior went off to college and and the parents now realize why they're together and then and they start this courtship which is probably incredibly important for next year because those birds are monogamous they're going to leave they're going to go to thousands of kilometers from here they're going to go to different places and so it's really good that they you know sort of cement And affirm those bonds, because the next time, you know, in a a couple of weeks, the next time they're going to see their mate is not for about six months, and it's going to be right at that exact same nest site when they recouple.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and so we're, it's an oat crop, like it's, it's, right now we're sitting on the edge of this cliff, and so right between us, there's this rock jutting up from the water that they're, that the majority
2: of the colonies seem to be on. That's right. Well, you know, right here, you can see what a result of the avian flu. Do you see how? thin it is on this side to the right and not so much on the other yes. side this and if you look really carefully like that chick is just on top of a dead body which i mean could be one of its parents or its Aww. neighbors this is there's dead bodies just in the mud you know adults them, yeah you know i mean i can see about 10 and if you really look they're just trampled in so so it looks like the avian influenza really hit this side of the stack but. You know for some reason the birds on the other side you know it, it didn't seem to spread as much so but you know that's the consequence of of that flu and again they've, they've had this difficult time of having really warm water to cope with and, and to try and get fish under these conditions so yeah there's a lot yeah there's a lot going on can you see that pair right there mary this mm-hmm. yeah well And and the fact of the matter is, the one on the left is probably the female. At the end of the season, the female's heads fade much more quickly than the male's. And if you look at those two birds, the bird on the right, the head is actually quite golden. And the bird on the left, the head's really much whiter. And so that's something that happens, you know, because the male gets another boost of testosterone at the end of the summer. With the female, I don't think she's getting any more estrogen or whatever, but she, her, head, her feathers are fading in the crown and his aren't. So, I mean, but otherwise you, you, you can't tell them apart. You know, they're monogamous, but we also say that they're, you know, sexually monomorphic. So with almost all seabirds, you know, puffins, murs, gannets, herring gulls it's almost impossible to tell males from females. And if you look at them long enough, sometimes you can pick up on behavior, or in this case a little bit of a faded plumage in the female. But otherwise, it's very interesting because, and, and, and it's interesting for a number of reasons, but when you can't tell the sexes apart. They, uh, those tend to be the species that share, among among seabirds at least, that share parental care. Wow. And when you can't, you know, so if you think of a mallard duck, the male's real spicy and spruced up. Well, he doesn't do much of anything. The female incubates the eggs, she cares for the chicks, you know, and he might march around and, you know, keep a predator away, you know, from the nest or whatever. But basically, All the work goes to the female, the the child, the kid care, the offspring care. But in species like these, when the two sexes look alike, they share, and they share everything. They both incubate the egg, they both feed the young. And in this case, with the gannet, neither parent goes to sea. That's why there's still parents there courting. The chick, at 13 weeks of age, which some of these birds are 12 or 13, weeks of age, they simply go to the edge of the cliff and make a decision they've never leap flown of faith. Before. leap of faith. It's absolutely a leap of faith. It's a rite of passage and you get one try. And if you do it right, you could you could sail out there like two or three kilometers. But if you do it wrong uh, you can hit the rocks below. You could hit the cliff on the way down. Um, so
1: sometimes they die on the first flight? Well, uh,
2: some, you know, it, it, they've got to get it right. And you can and you cannot. I saw one bird, it, it took off fine, but then it ended up hitting the water sideways and its wing just snapped, you know. So it's. And th- there's, there's a pair of copulating right there. So Where? there's a.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, see this. And
2: again, that kicks in at the end of the year. But after, why are they doing it the now? Yeah,
1: what? Well, why are they doing? Do, so that, like, when do they? You know what? You know what that's is? that is. So that, that's that's clearly bond.
2: bonding, right? Well, I bonding, mean, that's there's, clearly... there's no
1: purpose in what they're doing right now.
2: Well, there is. They're probably having a good time. Yeah, having a good time. For one, I know. Okay, all right. Yes. Now listen. <laughs> no, but besides that, there's probably a lot of purpose. They really are cementing their their relationship and their bond. And they, you know, they're copulating. There, I'm going to see you here in six months. I think all those things are really important. At the height of the season, when all the birds are here, mm. how many birds are
1: here and who's here?
2: The estimate's around, I think it's in the order of 15,000 pairs, which puts you at 30,000 birds, but then there's a lot of non-breeders, so you know, there's probably 40,000 gannets here over the course of the summer, I mean, it's a lot of... And then what else? There's mers. you know, at least 10,000 pairs of mers. so... 20, probably more, but at least twenty thousand murres that are on the cliffs, and we can't see them now. All that white wash over there on that cliff face; those are kittiwakes and murres nesting. Wow, all over off. there on the and other, so on the other side. And so they've all gone, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, so, so what
1: now, goes the through the your mind? Like the it's last ones it's so
2: leave. so beautiful here. It feels otherworldly in many ways. Well, I mean, I just always think that uh, you know, there's just something, and you know, there's some kind of resilience in the uh, in the natural world here that you know you get a little window to to watch it you just realize there's something going on here besides us
1: seabirds come to land to mate when do they go back to land yeah well they'll probably come back in april but, but that's w- about do they ever go to somewhere else and go to land is, is what? Like, like this is a stupid question, one of my many No, no, qu- but that's a good but, question. But, but they're, they're here on land, these seabirds who often live and swim on the ocean and, and, and fly in the ocean. They come here to mate and then they take off to a warmer climate, be it off
2: Africa or down the Gulf of Mexico. But do they go on land again after they leave no, here? No, no, that's a great question. That is a great question. And it's hard to not, see. We only when biologists started studying seabirds, this is all they studied. They studied birds on land, but in fact, in fact, they live most of their lives at sea. In fact, being on land is relatively alien for them. And the only reason they're there is because they have to come here to you know lay an egg and build a nest and raise their young. They can't do that in the ocean. These are marine birds, and essentially they spend almost all of their lives in the ocean. So what changed in biology? Now, this would have happened in the 1990s. What changed radically? You know, how did people study birds at sea? Well, they could go out in a boat and look for them. They could put a bird band on and hope somebody might find it at sea. But there weren't many things you could do. But then in the 1990s, all of a sudden, we had these GPS devices and tracking devices and diving devices. That's the driving research tool right now. It's it's tracking birds. Where do they go? Where do they go to feed when they're breeding? And then where do they go when they leave here and go off for the non-breeding season? So those questions are, are the most compelling questions. And the technology changed what biologists did from studying seabirds on land to studying seabirds on sea. So, like, how do you get a bird here? I mean, A, you can't get over
1: to that rock. No, that's so, right. So that so, rock is their rock. You've never been over there. That's right. But, and and, and then and the ones that are on the cliff on the... That's a
2: good question, yeah. yeah.
1: and the other ones who are on the cliff on the other side... Cause so some of the yeah, birds are on, on, right exactly on the land, on the cliff, what, but they're right on the cliff and they're on the rocks, like, tilting down to that huge... Uh, dangerous drop for us humans. Well, we how do you get, get a hold of them? How do you, yeah, how do you catch well, them? Well, you
2: know, I, I brought the gear to show you. This, and to me, this is, it might be the most, you know, fantastic interaction I actually have with birds. I, I have to catch them. And we have a, uh, a an extended, you know, it's essentially a fishing pole, but it telescopes out to about 15 or 20 feet. It has a little noose on the end of it and you, you work with the bird to get the noose around its neck and then you pull it and you pull the bird in. Now those birds are pretty tough, but they know you're trying to catch it. Why I find it so fascinating is the capture is essentially, it's not a rodeo, you know, it, and some people take it that way and that's not the right way to take it. The bird's stressed, the biologist is stressed, so most everybody gets it now, but it's, it's actually a negotiation. And the reason, the reason you catch the bird is because it's such a good parent. it doesn't want to leave its chick. And it knows that you're trying to catch it. It's well aware of that, but it, it doesn't want to leave its chick. And so you just have to be very gentle. And with that noose, you know, maybe lay it on the bird's side, and then maybe just a little bit at a time. And the bird will look at it like it's a string more than a threat. And just work it up, you know, maybe lean it on its neck, and then maybe be able to roll it over the head and beak, and then pull the bird in. Like some
1: of the ones we're looking over here on this oak crop, this rock climbing up over the ocean, how far is it from us? It's about what? How many o- feet? How far? From the edge of this cliff to the oak crop is what, do you the think? One right in front yes. of
2: Yes, yeah. I don't know. What is that? Maybe 60 feet? Yes, yeah, I mean, feet it's off. like we're sitting in a gannet colony, and they don't care because... They know, you know, I mean a fox could be sitting here and they wouldn't would care. care because they actually have that security. Actually, Mary, just looking over at the land, I just see it. Look up above, see there's another dead gannet right uh, on the very top of that wall, just laying on the rocks at the, up, above where the birds are. You can see that yeah. carcass up there. So, there's so, just really a lot of them around, which is really disturbing. We would never see this. There's just tens of dead gannets out there. And that doesn't. most of the ones we find are on the beaches or in the water. So it's wreaked havoc. And the other thing that happens, you know, we were talking about the parental care. It, for seabirds, you have to have two parents to raise a chick. So every time, you know, a parent dies, one parent cannot get that chick, uh, you know, can't raise it. So every time one parent dies of a pair, the chick is going to die. So, look, lots of places over there where we see lots of carcasses. We don't see any chicks. And so my guess is they're buried in the mud or something. How many birds do you think have died from the avian flu here? Well, you know, we know there's thousands. And when you say there's thousands and you talk about two sides of the ocean, I mean, it's got to be tens of thousands of birds. There's no question. There's a colony in France that's fairly, it's fairly close to Cape St. Mary's in terms of latitude, and it's not doing very well either. And Cape St. Mary's hasn't been doing very well. So for 50 years you've been coming here, and these
1: seabirds, the, these gannets, and the other birds, the mures...
2: The the It's the most beautiful gull. It's the most beautiful gull. It's a delicate little gull, and I don't see a one here. I wish we did because they're just fantastic. But when I, I want to ask why, for 50 years, have they fascinated
1: you, and why, why to this day, do they fascinate you?
2: Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not sure. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a vet, right, when I was really young. And I think if you get the privilege of then seeing animals besides pets, you know, real animals, wild animals in real environments, it, it, just, it just captures you. One of my students now, Tori, wasn't sure what her major would be. Anyway, she was in one of my classes, and we we got a lot of these storm patrols at the fish plant in Beta Verde, And I brought them in because we couldn't release them. The wind was too strong. So I brought them into the lab just so people could, one, you know, ban those birds, but also, you know, have the experience of handling them. And I remember Tori saying, as soon as I touched it, I knew what I wanted to do.
1: I also had the privilege of holding the storm petrel. My little darling. Oh, 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 oh. It's okay. It's okay. You're okay. You're the small okay. seabird had just taken flight oh, for the first okay. time in its life from Baccalieu Island, home to the largest leeches storm petrel colony in the world. It's just off the coast from the fishing community of Bay de Verde, which is a six-hour drive away from Cape Saint Mary's on the opposite side of the Avalon Peninsula, where Bill and I have come to conduct an overnight experiment where this young seabird just crashed into a brightly lit fish plant. Day two of my adventures with Bill Montevecchi. So we started with the largest seabird in North
2: Atlantic, which is a gannet, and now we're going to a, a smaller guy. They're not too much bigger than a robin, but they're like little albatrosses, the most fantastic animals. They forage out on the edge of the Grand Banks. There's millions of them, but in the last 30 years, there's 3 million of them missing, and that's 3 million out of about 8 million. So we're talking about, you know, maybe 40 percent of their population. It's coincident. A key problem is light pollution, such as
1: unnecessarily brightly lit fishing boats, oil rigs, or buildings along the coastline. In this case, the blinding night lights of the Quinlan Brothers fish plant in Beta Verde, one of the largest fish plants in Canada, where tens of thousands of storm petrels have been crashing during the night into the plant for years, many dying. Bill has been conducting an experiment with his students and some local residents on the impact of the lights on the storm petrels. When they're turned off, it's rare for a bird to crash into the fish plant, but when the lights are on, Bill has counted more than a thousand in a single night. Tonight, for the experiment, the lights are on. It's 7pm and freezing out. Bill and I are in his truck on the wharf in front of the fish plant. We're getting ready to count the number of storm petrels who come crashing into the wall, trying to get to the stunned birds before the seagulls swoop down and kill them. It's nearing the end of the season, so there are less storm petrels. But it's also the time small fledglings are leaving the nest for the first time, attempting to migrate thousands of miles away, only to be distracted by the fish plants glaring lights. The
2: evening starts off slow, but that
1: soon changes.
2: Well, the gull just jumped in the back behind the concrete. I don't think there's a bird there, but but there's two gulls at that concrete place there. We'll keep an eye on him. He obviously saw something. Wait a minute. Does he get something in his... Oh, he, almost, oh, yeah. oh he does.
1: The gull flies up with a young store petrol and petrol in it's beak. Bill and I are running around, waving our arms, trying to get it to drop it. It's over there. No, he still has it. It's over there. No, this goes on for what feels like ten <laughs> minutes, racing up and down the wharf. Eventually, we freak out the gull enough that it drops it. Storm
2: petrel's dead. Um, oh, is he
1: really dead?
2: Yeah. Oh, they're so incredible. So, this, this little guy, he's still warm. Oh, the poor and, guy. and we didn't save the bird, and we could have saved the birds, but we tried. Yeah, we tried. But we can do better.
1: And we do do better as more and more young storm petrels come crashing into the fish plant. The rest of the night, it was relentless. It's okay. It's okay. He's feisty.
2: I don't want to hurt him. <sighs> you, you, you didn't see the bird, you just saw the gull. I saw the gull, and then I saw the bird. Yeah, you, you blitzed down here, that was terrific. That's... Number six. Number six. Yeah, he hit the wall actually quite hard, but these are robust little birds. He seems fine, he's just in the bag now, we give him a little time to recuperate. And um, we'll make a note that we got them at uh, 10, 10, 10. And we'll get now get a wait.
1: So these guys, this little one that I have that I think is the smallest one tonight, is a fledgling. It, it just left its nest for the first time. But it's not returning to its nest? That's its plan, not to return?
2: When it leaves, its motivation really is to go to sea. Though a lot of them is transatlantic migration. You know, over to Spain, Portugal, down the African coast, some birds down to Namibia and and South Africa. So,
1: so this little guy or girl that I have right now, she, I mean, she was starting to go out in the ocean and then the light pulled her back in.
2: Yeah, it definitely seems to be what happened. And whether it was a pull, so we keep trying to figure it out, I keep trying to wrap my head around what's going on. Was it a pull? Was it a disorientation? And when I watch these birds flying around, they, a lot of these birds fly rather erratically. They actually don't fly into the lights. You know, they, they the lights seem to attract them, but they just whack into the wall. So it seems like it's kind of a disorientation. The light disorients them. And that's the danger here. They just whack into a wall. If there's no wall, then they get stuck in a parking lot or in the woods somewhere where they're stranded. And they, and they just can't take off very well and they get preyed on and all those things. So, But one thought is that, well, once they're in that sphere of light, there's an inhibition about flying into the dark. And, and that seems kind of strange to think about, because these are nocturnal birds. But maybe once they're in light, it's maybe more difficult for them to fly into into darkness. Oh, there's a storm pep Okay. All
1: right. Where? Go, wait, go. Oh. Uh, okay. Just saved another storm petrol from a gull. Oh, there's there's another one! Oh, did he die? No, he's okay. Oh, another one! Oh! Okay, now three. Okay, it's picking up. Okay, I'm just running around here like a crazy person. I'm going to put you in my pocket and zip you up. Okay. Well, I've just my tape curtain fell down. I've got three birds. One in my pocket, one in each hand. <laughs> it's 1.26 a.m. What time is
2: it now, Bill? It's 3 a.m. We can hope and pray we don't see any by four. <laughs> um, Oh, there's another bird. Okay, we're out of here. I didn't see it.
1: At the end of the night, the birds stopped coming, and I was finally able to join Bill and walk around the unlit back harbor behind the fish plant, where he'd been releasing them all night long, where together we would release the last storm petrol.
2: It's about 4 o'clock in the morning. You can just see a bit bit of light on the horizon. We captured, 39. Two of those died, one from a gull, one from a neck fracture hitting the wall of the fish plant, and 37 we released, which, had we not done that, I think if you came two weeks from now, you'd just see the remnants of the carcasses, like we saw when we first got here, and we counted 50. So... Um, So anyway, that's good. But the other thing is, for our experiment, we also have, you know, more evidence. uh, When the lights are on, we got 39 birds. Our last test last week, the lights were off, and we had zero birds, so... So we're walking out to the back end. This is where we release the last guy, so we can hope... Um, all right, I'll take your bag. Same routine, You're gonna model the bag. Here he is, I'm just gonna hold his legs. All right, let's hope this little fella's robust. I have his two legs. He's ready. Oh, okay, okay. Uh-oh. All right, he's pissed. So good, I love it when they're aggressive like that. He's, He's angry. Okay, hey, I'm gonna let you go. Look at this bird is great. He's a tough one. I'm going to hold him loosely in my cupped hands and sort of raise my arms up and down. And on this toss, I'm going to throw him as high and as far out as I can. All right, go. Whoa. Go. And he did it. Ah. Uh, it A a little bit of a more casual takeoff, but he, he hooked out over the sea, so... Good. Second chance.
1: Okay. Let's go to bed. Oh, man. Okay. We saved some birds.
0: You were listening to The Birdman, Adventures with Bill Montevecchi by Ideas producer Mary Link. And some uplifting news... In light of Bill's study, the Quinlan Brothers fish plant in Bay de Verde, Newfoundland, have turned off their lights for good in order to save these threatened storm petrels. You can go to our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, to see additional material from this documentary, including photos and video. Special thanks to Chris Mooney and Edna White, Sherry Green, Tori Burt, Gretchen McPhail, and Sydney Collins. Technical production, Danielle Duval and Pat Martin. Web producer, Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more
1: CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.